0: This, 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 this is KUT. K-U-T. K-U-T, Austin.
1: Stop.
2: This is KUT Weekend for the last weekend of 2017. Happy New Year. And thank you for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5, the NPR station in Austin, Texas. Here's what we got for you this week. Some of our favorite stories of the year. Like this one, old friends remembering good times, trouble and the East Austin they lost.
3: That violence created this uh, excuse, I think, to say, we have to go into this community and we have to fix it.
2: How a silenced DJ set spoke volumes about Austin's relationship with Latinos.
1: Feeling like we're always being dismissed. And our culture is always being used, but we're not being accepted.
2: And an Austin man's successful quest to change the US Constitution.
4: It essentially prevents legislators from giving themselves a pay raise. Those stories
2: and more in this edition of KUT Weekend. This year, you may recall, we spent months reporting about changes happening around one part of East Austin, the area around 12th and Chaconne. A lot of people have moved in around there. Many others have left, some by choice, some involuntarily. So what happens if you come back after a long and mandatory absence? KUT's Mos Buchel has that story.
5: This is a story about two guys and how a neighborhood shaped their lives. Testing. This is the first time I've ever used this mic so you got God forgive me. It's all right. Get it together. This is Andreas Mueller. I can honestly say this is the first time I've ever been recorded. Oh, yeah? You know,
6: okay. Openly recorded.
5: <laughs> and this is Matthew Malcolm-Klyman.
3: I'm born in Brackenridge Hospital in 1979.
5: They grew up together on the East Side. Tell me a little bit about your family.
3: Uh, both my parents are radical activists, hippies. <laughs> and
5: my mother knew his mother
6: from going to uh, UT from the 70s.
3: So what's a good soundtrack for their childhood? Uh, I'm told by my parents the first record I ever heard was Jimi Hendrix Experience.
5: This is how they remember it. Man,
6: we would just little kids run around the neighborhood. If we seen a trampoline in your backyard, we would come knock on your door and ask you can we jump on the trampoline.
3: It was a family atmosphere. Old people used to sit on their porches and watch us. and yelling at us you know while we were running through their yards get off my grass
5: there were hard parts too money was tight andreas's mom was sick with lupus he started caring for her even driving her around when he was just a kid matthew's parents often weren't around so they say the neighborhood helped raise them this is how matt describes the east side back in the 80s
3: we were not poor We were working-class people. We were proud working-class people. We were people that had everything in our communities and our neighborhoods that we needed. We had mom-and-pop grocery stores, Roy Lee's on Maina Road, okay? Guess what? Black-owned, mom-and-pop. They were all over the East Side. You know, we never felt welcome on West Austin, which is why we didn't go there. But, uh... We were always at home on the east side.
5: I think a lot of people that listen to whatever story comes out of this will probably imagine that you're a black guy. Maybe. Here I'm talking to Matt.
3: A lot of people have thought that my entire life, though, especially just... um. Just hearing my voice.
5: <laughs> it wasn't Matt,
6: that's White Boy Matt.
3: That's my name. <laughs> white Boy Matt. Yeah.
6: My oldest son, whenever he was about two or three, called him White Boy Matt. We all snapped on him. You don't get to call him White Boy Matt. You only call him Matt
3: or Uncle Matt. But I think that at that time, that's something that brought us together, too. Yeah. I have to say, like, you know, both of us, for different reasons, weren't really even accepted in our own communities.
5: Matthew, because he was a white guy who identified with black culture. Andreas, because he was mixed race. His dad is African American. His mom, a white East German immigrant.
6: Came over here by herself and was never married and ended up having, you know, a mixed child. And, you know, an immigrant with a minority child, you know, growing up in Texas, you know, was was something different.
5: That might have been one of our early bonding points, not not ever knowing. And a lot of our other
3: friends were outcasts in in different ways, too, you know.
5: Things got harder, as they usually do when the guys became teenagers. But it was more than just the usual challenges. Andreas' mom got sicker, Matt's parents divorced. This was in the early 90s, and they say the neighborhood was changing too.
3: Gangs and violence kind of started to have this place in East Austin, and it came into my life.
5: Now here, they want to be careful. On one hand, they feel like the east side got a bad rap when it came to crime. Don't let it be said that no, you know we were we were you like normal, the normal. No, not at all. No, because it was families over there. Yeah,
6: you know it and wasn't it was trying to crack raise houses right. on every block. Yeah, it was families over there.
5: But on the other hand, they say drug dealing became part of their reality. What's this? This is criminal element, man. This is Texas music, Houston. Yeah,
6: Texas music. But I mean, a lot of this music we used to listen to reflected of. What we were, our environment was, you know, we, you know, you, you relate to what you see, what you live.
5: So here's what they saw. Crack hits the street in the 80s. Police, who seem to turn a blind eye to drug use in white communities, start focusing on drug enforcement on the east side.
3: You know, there's lawyers that live on the west side that snort up tons of cocaine, you know what I mean?
5: They think some of that law enforcement created more chaos than it prevented. Older men were incarcerated. Boys like Matthew and Andreas started taking their place.
6: That's, that was the best thing you could give me, knowing that my mom's finna die. Your best info that you can give me, that I can take with me all 50 states in America to cook crack, and I can get paid regardless what slum where I live at. So that was, that's, that was
5: the, the, the teachings of survival. Eventually, both friends did time in prison. When Andreas got out in the early 2000s, he could hardly recognize the East Austin he returned to. Rents were up, a lot of the old businesses were gone, and there were a lot more white people around.
6: You know, something I seen when I first got out of prison was, you know, it tripped me out. I called a white woman walking down 12th Street at three o'clock in the morning, even though, what am I doing at three in the morning? And I was like, I've never seen this. And the entire time, I'm 23, finna be 24 years old, and I've never seen this.
3: Matt noticed it too. You're in your jogging shoes, and your yoga pants, walking up 12th Street, man. Are you kidding me? But for him, it played a little differently. Now, when I go to the East Side, I'm just that white guy on the East Side. Yeah, you're just that white guy that came
5: into my neighborhood, that bought a house here. A lot of the old neighbors were gone too, and Andreas's mom had passed away. He was in prison and couldn't keep up on tax payments for her house. So when he got out, he lost that too that was over 10 years ago. But Andreas stayed in town, and Matthew did too. They just ended up moving to a different part of it. It was a complete coincidence, but now they live just a few blocks away from each other, down the street from a local school on the south side. Andreas has a wife and kids, when he's not working, he volunteers coaching youth sports.
6: I want to get back because I know how easy it is to get in trouble and not get out.
5: Matt says he's focused on self-improvement, not drinking, not smoking. I'm
3: boring, man. Uh-huh. You know, I'm a trades person. I just work uh, with my hands, you know, carpentry, masonry. I like to do some music and stuff for fun. I walk my dogs. That's about yeah, most you're going to catch me. Yeah, he walks his
5: dogs to my practices. Yeah. <laughs> when they get together, they talk about the old neighborhood. They say it won't go back to the way they remember it as kids.
3: The East Side is not going to ever be the East Side
5: again, and it's because people don't want the East Side. And they wonder if the crime they got caught up in somehow ended up contributing to the gentrification that came after. That violence
3: created this uh, excuse, I think, to say, we have to go into this community and we have to fix, fix it for them. But they but they were they were coming from an outside position.
5: What really could fix it? They say it, it all comes down to money. Loans for family-owned businesses, wages that keep up with the cost of living, and funding for improved public schools. For Andreas and Matthew, these solutions seem obvious. They just don't seem to get done. So the two friends focus on building a new community in a different part of town. Moe's well, Bouchelle, KET News. Mm-hmm.
2: A new sorority started up at the University of Texas at Austin with Greek letters. They have colors, which are teal, white, and peach, all pretty typical for any sorority. But as KOT's Nadia Hamdan reports, this sorority is actually carving a new path in Greek life.
1: It's just before six o'clock in the evening. I'm sitting at the back of a classroom watching a group of ten women slowly trickle in. Tonight is their sorority's first chapter meeting. After all, the girls are seated at a desk with a binder. They focus their attention to their president, Maria Hassim.
4: I was personally very, very excited and very, very nervous about our first chapter meeting. This is my first time doing it, but inshallah, I'll go ahead and start doing it, and I know each semester I'll get better.
1: It's a little hard to hear, but you may have noticed a word in Arabic. She said inshallah, a commonly used expression that means God willing. But Hasim feels comfortable invoking the name of Allah because this is a meeting of Mu Delta Alpha, the nation's first college-based Muslim sorority. Their founder is Samira Maddox.
7: I wanted somewhere that I can fit in when I was in college
1: and have that full college experience. Maddox started the sorority three years ago at the University of Texas at Dallas. Maddox was born in Somalia, grew up in Canada, and has been living in the US for 10 years now. She says she started MDA simply because she was
7: trying to find something like it on campus and couldn't. I felt like there wasn't a place of belonging for me, being a Muslim woman, African-American. I was like, you know, maybe if we could have something for women only in a university, what could that be? Happens to be a sorority.
1: This year alone, the sorority has launched three new chapters at UT Austin, the University of North Texas, and Texas Women's University. Each campus held their rush week last month, and now over 60 young women are calling themselves sisters of Mu Delta Alpha. But Maddox says reaching this milestone wasn't easy. We were struggling so much that, you know, it took a while to get here. Maddox received pushback when she decided to start MDA. Although UT Dallas supported her efforts, it was difficult to find a faculty advisor. She needed one before she could do anything else, and she heard a lot of no's.
7: We could tell that people were scared. They've never had anything like this, you know, just Muslim people coming out of nowhere and saying, hey, do you want to be our advisor? You'll be responsible for any event that we do. You'll be the one who advocates for us at the school. There was a lot of pushback on that.
1: Even after she finally got an advisor, there were other challenges ahead. Their first rush brought in over a dozen young Muslim women. But there was confusion about what kind of sorority this would be. Some worried it would be a stereotypical Greek experience with parties and drinking. A strict adherence to the Muslim faith means no alcohol. So many of those first pledges changed their minds. That left MDA's founding class with only three people. Everybody who
7: thinks of sororities, they have the idea of the movies, you know, all those parties and in the houses or whatever they have. That's what people were thinking initially. We we're gonna do to them is like, why would you want to do that?
1: But Mu Delta Alpha's focus is less about the social and more about the professional. They meet twice a month, organize career workshops, book motivational speakers, and have a required number of community service hours. Their goal. To be a positive force for young women to help them on their journey to a successful career, all the while focusing on their Islamic identity. And after a couple years at UT Dallas, people started to better understand what the sorority was about. That led to more members and the push to additional campuses. Which brings us back to UT Austin Chapter President Maria Hassim.
4: My identity means everything to me, Um, not just as a Muslim, but as an American Pakistani, as a first-generation immigrant. All these things mean a lot to me in that they shape my perspective in how I think but also in the way that I move about the world and it also affects the way the world responds to me.
1: One of the sorority's main goals is to find successful Muslim women and make them accessible to the sisters. They do that in part through a speaker series. Essentially, I really wanted like this mentorship program that provided mentors that
4: understood the types of struggles that Muslim women go through or Muslim girls go through as they grow up.
1: And it's that focus on young Muslim girls that sparked the idea for their first annual event, the Young Muslima Summit. Back in April, the sorority held a conference in Dallas for around 200 young Muslim women ages 9 to 15. They offered interactive workshops, tackling topics such as body image, bullying, and education. And, of course, they brought prominent speakers, including Bilkis Abdelkader, the Muslim-American basketball player who was banned from playing with her hijab by the International Basketball Federation. She fought the ban and won just this past year. Sorority founder Samira Maddox says it's stories like that that she hopes will shatter the common misconceptions of Muslim women.
7: She needs to walk behind her husband. She has no say. She can be a leader. She is not excellent. She has to stay at home because she's oppressed. But you know what? The most oppressive thing is when people believe that, especially women, when a woman thinks that I'm not empowered the same way as her.
1: Back in the classroom, I catch one of the newest pledges of Mu Delta Alpha, UT sophomore Lena Barakat. She says an organization like this was needed.
7: Being Muslim to me is everything. It's the best part of me, I think. And I don't like my dream. I want to work in the UN. And I don't see that sort of role model yet. And so what I really love here is that we're becoming the mentors that we don't have right now. She
1: hopes other young pledges will look to her one day and say, I want to do what she's doing. When that happens, Baraket says she'll be right there, extending a hand. Nadia Hamdan, KUT News
2: Over the summer, we heard about an incident at a new bar in downtown Austin. Members of a DJ group made up of Latino women say the bar shut down the set they'd been hired to play. But KUT's Ashley Lopez reports it's also brought up a complicated issue here in Austin, and that is the city's relationship with the Latino community.
8: The Tulita Vinyl Club had a gig at a new bar downtown. The group describes itself as an all-girl, all-vinyl club for self-identifying women of color. They had accepted a Friday night gig at a bar called Caroline. It opened in the Aloft Hotel just the day before. The group was supposed to open and close for a band called Superfonicos. I'll let Claudia Aparicio Gamundi,
9: one of the members of Chulita Vinyl Club, take the story from here. So we played for two hours. We did a whole medley of different sounds. It went from hip-hop to, all
0: the killers and the
9: to Motown.
0: I don't like you,
9: but I love you. Funk. Jungle disco. <laughs> I mean, it started building up to Superfónicos. Um, we really loved them, and so we, we we curated the set very well as far as, like, the transition. The band played for about an hour and a half. And then, it was back to Chulita Vinyl Club. I mean, after Superfónicos, everybody was ready to dance. Started moving tables, dancing to our music, and then that's when we started playing salsa, cumbia. I mean, there was some Selena. There was, uh, <laughs> there was some Broad City, uh, <laughs> Latino and proud.
6: Yeah.
9: There was a lot of that. So, so I guess they they weren't expecting it for some reason. Um, we literally had either 10 minutes or close to 10 minutes to to end. That's when a manager came up and asked, who's in charge of the music? And I said, we all are, what's up? And then he just said, this hotel does not play Latin music, you need to shut it off. Other members of
8: the Tulita Vinyl Club, Jennifer Rother and Alejandra Gonzalez, say they were told the gig was over.
10: It happened very fast. I mean, this interaction was just like this, and I think we're all in shock as it happened, There's we were just like, out. "What the yeah, hell is going <laughs> on?" Like you know, you know it was like he says, we don't play Latin music, and then he like goes away. Gonzalo says they
8: were told, quote, the vibe was too low. She says she still isn't entirely sure what that meant. I called the general manager at Caroline, a man named David Meisner, and asked him to talk about what happened. Meisner sent a written statement. I'm going to skip to the part where he explains why they asked Tulita Vinyl Club to stop playing. He said, quote, the request was not about the genre of music. It was about tempo, but we did not communicate or handle the situation appropriately on our end, end quote. Meisner also said he's retraining his team to create a more inclusive and respectful environment. Chulita Vinyl Club's Alejandra Gonzalez and Yesenia Hirons say they are not angry that the venue didn't like their music or their music's tempo, though. We're mad because you said you don't play Latin music here and you have a Latin funk band and
1: Chulita Vinyl Club that you booked. I like think if it was really about the vibe, if you wanted to switch the vibe, then... Um, there were other ways that we could have been approached.
8: The women of Chulita Vinyl Club say they personally felt embarrassed, used, and disrespected that night. But they say the worst part is that their culture was also disrespected. Yesenia Hirón and Claudia Aparicio Gamundi say in a city like Austin, where Latino culture is big business, this happens too often.
1: So that goes hand in hand, be- feeling like we're always being dismissed. And our culture is always being used, but we're not being accepted.
9: Yeah, it's like you want your tacos and you want your expensive margaritas and mezcal, but you don't want the people that come with it. They say this is a common
8: sentiment among Latinos here in Austin. That's especially true in the Mexican-American community, says Dr. Laura Hernandez-Erezman. She's an assistant professor at St. Edwards University here in Austin.
1: There's a very long history of this this problem. The appropriation of particular components of, you know, particularly Mexican-American culture and sort of commodifying them and then and sort of disregarding the people themselves.
8: Hernandez Erisman says that as Austin's star has continued to rise nationally and internationally even, the Latino community hasn't felt it as much.
1: Even though there have been a number of, you know, successful Latinx-owned restaurants, you know, taco places and things in Austin, they don't, they get
11: sort of overshadowed.
8: She says there's also a lot of outsiders moving in and opening businesses that are geared mostly to wealthier white communities. Couple this with gentrification, which is forcing out a lot of minorities. And she says it's easy to see how something like what happened to the Chilita Vinyl Club hit a nerve. Hernandez Erzman says city leaders can help ease resentment. She says there are some that want to do something, but it won't be easy.
1: So I think in some ways they're moving in a positive direction. But I also think that, you know, these are challenging forces to confront, you know, and and the level of city government, there are only so many tools that those leaders have.
8: Hernandez Ayersman says she's pretty impressed with the Chulita Vinyl Club, and she's happy what happened is getting so much attention. Like she said, it's not a new problem, but the fact that this group of women stood up and said something is progress. Yesenia Hirom from Chulita Vinyl Club hopes it sends a message.
1: And that it also encourages other people to speak out against things of this nature, because so many times... We grow accustomed to it and we don't say anything, but I think we should say something. Hola, hola,
8: Ashley Lopez, KUT News.
11: Latin de la calle. In authentic Latin beat.
2: Zilker Park is considered one of Austin's most treasured parks. Of course, there's the Barton Springs pool, Austin city limits, but Zilker's got another lesser known treasure. KUT's Andrew Weber took a look at what's buried just beneath the surface.
12: The Zilker caretaker lodge hides in plain sight near Barton Springs pool. It was built in 1930. It's quaint. The stone building is tucked away, enveloped by a garden of native plants. But it's also home to a long-forgotten relic of the Cold War.
13: An air raid warning has been declared in this area.
11: This means that possibly within 20 minutes, the Austin area may be hit by missiles. There will not be time to evacuate. Repeat, there
10: will not be
12: time... In the grip of the Cold War, the city of Austin partnered with the federal government to build what's called a model shelter. It's like a model home, but for people who wanted to protect themselves from vaporization, radiation poisoning and all the other trappings of massive nuclear retaliation. It was the first of its kind in the Southwest. It opened in 1960. Then Governor Price Daniel attended the opening. So did Austin's mayor and the city's civil defense director, Terry Blodgett. He was the guy you just heard in that terrifying clip from a PSA on the benefits of building
11: shelters. There will not be time to evacuate.
12: But after it opened, it was essentially abandoned. The city never really bothered to staff it, and it's just been sitting there for the last six decades. So, I tried to tour it with Kim McKnight of the Parks Department.
2: Oh, well, it, you know, we, we're we not ready to, to bring people down there. There's standing water that would need to be pumped out. And, um, you know, it's it's just, it's not it's not been cleaned out in quite a while. So it's it's really not available yet for tours. If in one we are able to open it up, we'll certainly let you know. But at this time, it's it's just simply not visitor ready. We always like to put our best foot forward, and it's, it's just not there yet.
12: She led the project to revamp the Caretaker Lodge, but she says revamping the Zilker Shelter wasn't in the cards. So, how did it get here?
10: Uh, In the 1950s, you saw doomsday newspaper articles that talked about how Austin and Texas in general was an ideal target for nuclear war, and that We needed to protect ourselves.
12: That's Katie Hill. She's a grad student at UT studying architecture. She started researching the shelter when she helped the Parks
10: Department with the
12: restoration of the Caretaker Lodge.
10: One of the ways to protect ourselves was these shelters, and there really was a panic about it.
12: But the shelter fad didn't last long. A year later, the federal government used Austin as a test case. It enlisted UT sociologist Harry Moore to do a survey to gauge public awareness. Only 17 of the 500 respondents had a shelter. The majority of folks hadn't even seen a model shelter like the one at Zilker Park, and the city's former civil defense director, Terry Blodgett, told Katie Hill the city didn't sink a whole lot of effort into the shelter after it got off the ground.
10: His response really surprised me in that he passed it off as no big deal, took maybe less than 10% of his time, Um, but he was cited really heavily in all of the newspaper articles around that time as pitching this as an affordable option that citizens should invest in. But his perception of it this many years later is, uh, it wasn't that big a deal.
12: We try to reach Blodgett, but he wasn't available for an interview. Hill says there are other fallout shelters like the Zilker one around town, but they're hard to track. The city didn't really document ones built on private property very well. As for the future of the Zilker shelter, Kim McKnight says the Parks Department would like to completely restore it one day.
2: Um, there's a kind of a movement nationally. There's a lot of national defense sites that are very unusual all around the country. And so this is part of a larger story of what the landscape and the sort of relics of that time are, and how do we interpret that as a way of, you know, not repeating history.
12: Andrew Weber, KUT News. $800,000
2: can buy a lot for a small university. It could cover faculty salaries, renovations to a campus building, even new technology. Houston Tillotson University, the only historically black college in Austin, this year received an anonymous donation in that amount, $800,000, but it was earmarked for something unique. Pianos. This donation allowed the university to buy 15 Steinway pianos, replacing every piano at the school. AUT's Claire McInerney reports on what it sounds like to be an all-Steinway school.
14: For decades, music students at Houston Tiltson used the same pianos. Nobody knows the exact year, but faculty, staff, and students all agree the last time Houston Tiltson got new pianos was around the 70s. Isaac Moshe, a junior music student, calls the old pianos sound muddy. He demonstrates to our photographer, Jorge Sunweza Lyon what he means.
4: I'd have to go I mean, just,
5: the other one just touch, too. just touch a key here, and then touch this one. Oh yeah, it's like muddy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
14: So the university kicked off a campaign to buy new pianos. An anonymous donor heard about their campaign and wrote a check for eight hundred thousand dollars, all to be used on new Steinway pianos. It's like they went from driving a used Honda Civic to a Tesla or 15 Teslas. The most expensive one cost $160,000. When Moshe heard he'd get to play on Steinways,
2: I didn't believe it, and I still don't believe it.
14: The donation came late in the summer. The local Steinway showroom provided pianos for the practice rooms. A small group of administrators and music professors flew to New York to the Steinway factory to pick out their grand concert piano, that really expensive one that now sits in the chapel. All the pianos were delivered last week. A crew of movers unloaded them.
5: See if I can fix it. <laughs> and assembled
14: them. Ain't that this one?
5: I
10: handed you the leg.
14: Okay, we will give it to you. The thing about Steinways is every piano is made by hand. Local Steinway dealers were on site to make sure the instruments made it safely. Matthew Bird works at the showroom in Austin. He explains the detail that goes into making one of the baby grands that's now in a professor's office. This piano
12: took 12 months to make, one year by 300 pairs of hands and has over 12,000 parts.
14: Multiply that by 15. That's the quality of instruments moving crews rolled into Houston Tillotson's music school. Staff and students knew the delivery was coming last week. They started trickling into the hallways to get a peek. The first piano ready to play was set up in Gloria Quinlan's office. She teaches voice in the music school and uses her piano to accompany her voice students.
11: Hey, I'm going to open my piano.
14: She opens the lid to her baby grand and coos at the instrument in front of a group of students. Look at it! (laughs) She's so eager to play that she calls in vocal student Jasmine Williams from the hallway to sing along with her.
8: Have you warmed up? No. We'll be okay. Okay.
14: Finland has taught at Houston Tillotson for 20 years. She says teaching music on these pianos is an extraordinary opportunity for her and her students.
9: I tell my students that I'm preparing them for the stages of the world, and I think that they deserve the best.
14: Sophomore Jay Tillman arrives at Quinlan's office to see the piano. He plays a few notes. Hey! Yes!
4: Wow. Butter. Butter.
14: Wow. Tillman says the difference between the old pianos and the Steinways is dramatic. Some, you know, it's not like wine. Wine, the older it is, the better it is. Pianos, you know, it's kind of the opposite. (laughs) So. Even after playing just a few notes, Tillman says the Steinway challenges him to be a better musician. It's a lot of pressure. Because an instrument this
6: good will highlight your flaws. (laughs) It will bring out what you don't know. (laughs) About the piano, about your technique, about your song, you know.
14: The pressure to play the new pianos well came quickly. Tillman and Moshe were chosen to play them a few days later at the university's Charter Day celebration. It's an annual event celebrating the school's founding. This year, it doubled as the public's introduction to the Steinways. Board President Albert Hawkins kicks off the celebration of the pianos and the renovated music building.
5: As we think through uh, the accolades that we use to describe Houston, tell us that I'm so very pleased that will soon be, we'll be able to add a new distinction to that list, and that is that Houston Tillerson is an all-Steinway
14: school. There's a toast and a ribbon-cutting. Then the crowd heads into the music building to see and hear the pianos firsthand. Jay Tillman demonstrates the sound of the instrument on one of the upright Steinways in a practice room. It
7: feels
6: like the piano wants more, and so it's begging me to keep keep playing. You know, Some pianos, when you play, they feel like, oh, Lord, can you stop playing me, you know?
14: <laughs> but this one is like, no, I want, I want, I want more. Yeah. The crowd eventually files into the choir room. They stand around one of the grand pianos to hear Isaac Moshe play the first public performance on the Steinway. Claire McInerney, KUT News.
2: And now a story we first heard in March about one man's mission to amend the U.S. Constitution. This does not happen very often. KUT's Matt Largy has the story of the last time it did. And the tale begins right here in Austin.
0: This is a story about how one regular person one extremely dedicated, extremely vocal, energetic person can move the machinery of government by sheer force of will. That person was this guy, Gregory Watson, and it all started back in the spring of 1982.
13: I was taking a class here at the University of Texas. It was a government class, and the professor's name was Sharon Waite. I'm Sharon Waite. And she gave us an assignment of write a paper about a governmental process.
11: Oh yes, you were to write an essay, and since I had concentrated on the Constitution and the amendments, uh, many students chose to write on the Constitution and the amendments.
0: Before we go any further, I want to take a second to do some remedial civics. You've probably heard of the Constitution. It's been in the news a little bit lately. It's the foundational document of this country. So it's kind of important. And it's really hard to change it. You have to get two-thirds of Congress to approve an amendment, and then you need three-quarters of state legislatures to ratify it, 38 states in all. So it's really hard. And that's by design. Yes, yes, the founders saw this as higher law. That's Zach Elkins, he's a professor at UT Austin, and he turned me on to this story.
4: And so in some sense should be beyond the reach of uh, majorities and certainly a majority in the legislature it makes sense for higher law you want something a little more stable remember since it
0: was approved in 1789 there've been 27 amendments 10 of those happened right away that's the bill of rights freedom of speech right to bear arms etc since then there've been 17 more amendments they're generally pretty big ones abolishing slavery prohibition giving women the right to
4: vote repealing prohibition
0: big and There are many, many more that get proposed that never go anywhere.
4: So if you look through these, it's interesting. You can see in some ways where the Constitution doesn't quite fit what people want for their society and politics. But yet none of these things ever come to fruition.
0: Which brings us back to Gregory Watson trying to figure out what he's going to write that paper on.
13: So I'm at the library down on 8th and Guadalupe. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. I pull out a book that has within it a chapter of amendments that Congress has sent to the state legislatures, but which not enough state legislatures approved in order to become part of the Constitution. And this one just jumped right out at me. It said, no law.
4: Varying the compensation.
13: Varying the compensation
4: for the services. The services of the senators and representatives. Of the
13: senators. And representatives
4: shall take effect
13: until until an election of representatives shall have intervened.
0: intervened. And so in layman's terms, what does that mean?
4: It essentially prevents legislators from giving themselves a pay raise. At least the raise can't take effect until after the next election.
13: I thought, well, that's that makes perfect sense. I see great logic in that.
0: The thing is, this amendment was written in 1789, almost 200 years earlier, by James Madison, one of the founding fathers. It was supposed to be one of the very first amendments to the Constitution. It didn't get passed by enough states. But here's the thing, it didn't have a deadline, so technically it could still be ratified. Gregory was intrigued, so he got to work. It was
13: back in the days when you had maybe, if you were lucky, you had an IBM Selectric typewriter. And I did have an IBM Selectric typewriter, and I had a few different typeface uh, balls that those typewriters used. And I remember being so cautious about everything, I would take out the normal ball, then put in the italic ball for a court case, and then take the italic ball out, put the normal one back in, and did all this wonderful work and turn it into the TA and get it back with a great big C on it. So I appealed it to the professor.
11: Well, he came up and he said, I wrote this paper and I don't think I deserve a C. I think it's much better than that. And I kind of glanced at it, but I really didn't see anything that was particularly outstanding about it. And I thought a C was probably fine.
13: She came back the following class period and literally flung it at me and said, no change.
11: So I said... There it is. (laughs) See, it is. And left it at that.
0: You know, most people would have just taken the grade at that point and left it at that. But Gregory is not most people.
13: So I thought right then and there, I'm going to get that thing ratified.
0: The amendment had been passed by nine states already, most way back in the 1790s. But Gregory needed 38 he needed to get 29 more states to pass it. And when he told people about his plan, the reaction was generally not positive.
13: The very, very, very initial reaction from like guys in the dorm room and stuff like that was laughter and dismissiveness and it'll never happen.
0: And in a way, that was motivating. So he started looking for members of Congress who might be sympathetic to the idea of limiting their own ability to give themselves a pay raise.
13: I started asking them, who back home in the state legislature of your home state do you think might be willing to introduce a resolution to resurrect this amendment from the year 1789 that I stumbled upon by accident?
0: There were plenty of rejections, but mostly he'd just hear nothing back at all. But finally, he did get something. A senator from Maine said he'd pass it on to someone in his state. That person passed it on to someone else who introduced the amendment in the Maine legislature. And
13: in their 1983 session, they passed it. And in the summer of that year, June, I get a nice big envelope with a parchment copy of it. So I'm thinking my first success story. This can actually be done.
0: So Gregory got out that old IBM Selectric typewriter and started writing to every state lawmaker he could find. And it worked. The next
13: year was 1984, and I was able to get Colorado to pass it. Five ratifications in 1985, three more in 1986. 87 was a good year. We got Connecticut, we got Montana, we got Wisconsin. I've got Georgia, I've got Louisiana. A big explosion of seven in 1989 slowed down to only two in 1990, only one in 1991. But at that point, it was getting very, very close. And I am literally sending a letter to every member of the legislature.
0: After 10 years of letter writing, sweet talking, and shaming, 35 states had ratified the amendment. So 1992 rolls around,
13: and I'm thinking, three more states, that's all I need.
0: Alabama and Missouri both passed it on May 5, 1992. On May 7, Gregory was on the phone, listening to the Michigan House of Representatives as they voted on the amendment. This was it, the last state.
13: At that time, I knew that the amendment had been ratified within seconds of it happening.
0: After 10 years, his quest was finally over. More than 200 years after it was proposed, the 27th Amendment was finally ratified.
13: I did treat myself to a nice dinner at an expensive restaurant.
0: Now, here's the thing that really strikes me about what Gregory did. People talk about amending the Constitution all the time, but it's incredibly rare because it's a really hard thing to do. But here's a guy, a kid really, who actually did it. This happened in 1992, and it's still the most recent amendment to the Constitution.
13: I wanted to demonstrate... That one extremely dedicated, extremely vocal, energetic person could push this through. And I think I demonstrated that.
4: In some ways, his story is very much an Austin story. That's Zach Elkins from UT again. You'd expect people wandering the streets talking about their grand project uh, for changing the country. And here is... Greg Watson, who is not just wandering the streets muttering about the 27th Amendment, he actually got it passed.
0: Since all this happened, Gregory has been a state legislative aide and a city council aide in Austin, but he's kept pursuing these kinds of projects. In 1995, he got Mississippi to post-ratify the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery. It was symbolic, but it meant something. And then there's the little stuff, a little less grand than amending the Constitution. Lately, his project has been getting the city to put up street signs at intersections that don't have them.
13: They don't want to put a sign at Andrew Zilker in Columbus Drive, but I'll keep pestering them, and finally they will.
0: (laughs) Meantime, as Gregory celebrated his achievement, things weren't going so well for his old professor, Sharon Waite. Of course, she had no idea what Gregory had done. She'd moved back to South Texas in the 10 years since he was her student. When she got there, she tried to get a teaching job at the university nearby. No luck.
11: Which is fine, That just happened that way. But at any rate, I was feeling sorry I'd spent all those years studying and, you know, nothing.
0: She'd look at all the notebooks and papers and stuff she'd collected over the years, getting her master's and her PhD, all these ideas and thoughts and knowledge. And she wondered, what was it all for? Until one day.
11: One day, the phone rings. This is about 1991 or 92.
0: It was 92, a little while after the 27th Amendment was ratified. The caller asked for her by name.
11: They said, well, did you teach at UT Austin in the early 80s? And I said, yes, I did. I said, well, this is a professor from the Naval Academy, and I'm writing a book on constitutional amendments. Did you know that one of your students, Gregory Watson, pursued getting this constitutional amendment passed because you gave him a bad grade.
0: Sharon was blown away. And in that moment, she felt redeemed.
11: Many people have always said, you never know what kind of effects you're gonna have on other people and on the world. That you'll never know a lot of the things that you have affected in your life. And this is when it really hit me because I thought to myself, you have just by Making this fellow a grade he didn't like affected the U.S. Constitution more than any of your fellow professors ever thought about doing. (laughs) (laughs) And how ironic is that?
0: And with the benefit of hindsight, Sharon says, he clearly doesn't deserve that C she gave him.
11: Goodness, he certainly proved he knew how to work the Constitution and what it meant, (laughs) and how to be politically active. So yes, I think he deserves an A after that effort. A plus.
0: And actually that's exactly what's happened. On March 1st, Sharon signed a form to officially change Gregory's grade. It still has to be stamped by some people at UT, but when it is, 35 years after he wrote that paper, he'll finally turn that C into an A. Matt Largie, KUT News.
2: That is KUT Weekend for the last weekend of 2017. Happy New Year to you. I hope you'll keep listening in 2018. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5 and KUT.org.